Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you and your organization can offer your customers better peace of mind, a more customized buying experience, and how you can create a new stream of revenue for your organization, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com, the global leaders in refund protection. My guest today is my friend Carolyn Gibbs, who is the chief purchasing officer of Ticket City. I wanted to have Carolyn on today um, because, number one, she's a friend of mine. She's married to two-time guest, uh, Corey Gibbs, and uh, we've known each other for a couple years, um, and I think she brings a really good insight. Carolyn is, besides being in charge of purchasing at Ticket City, she is also a board member for the NATB, and she works on um, their membership drive. So I had her on. I wanted to talk to her about a lot of different things. Um, Mainly one of the things that was driving the idea of having her on it for this conversation was some of the stuff I learned at Intix, which was I saw a lot of guys from the secondary market, a lot of girls from the secondary market. Um, they're talking at Intix, trying to um, talk to and, and work with people on the primary side. Um, and maybe there were some challenges about express, expressing the value of the secondary market to the primary market. Um, Carolyn has a, a very good way of explaining that. We wanted to talk about that. Um, I also really like the way that um, she views partnerships and how to make a partnership uh, successful and what makes an effective partner. So we talked about that. Um, we get into a little bit of stuff about technology, which is interesting to me. Um, and I named dropped my uh, new committee assignment for Intix, which is the uh, Technology and Best Practices Committee. So we talk a little bit about technology. Um, the proper use of data, uh, how they use data at Ticket City to uh, price and make decisions. Um, then we talk about uh, the NATB, um, some of the things that are going on at the NATB, some of the areas that the NATB focuses on, uh, some of the things they probably don't focus on. And then even I talk about what is often a challenge for the NATB um, that maybe they get talked about needing to focus on, but I don't think it is a thing they should be focusing on consolidation. Um, we get it's pretty wide ranging conversation. Um, it's just two friends catching up without the wine. Um, but I hope you dig this conversation between me and Carolyn Gibbs from Ticket City. I'd like to welcome my friend Carolyn Gibbs from Ticket City to the Business of Fun podcast. What's happening? Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. This is like this is just like when I have Corey on. It's like one of those conversations and like hanging out, but recorded. So, but we don't have any drinks. So, I guess we'll have to do <laughs> we'll have to do it completely on the uh, level today. Um, but thank you for All doing right. this. Uh, I sent Corey a text a couple weeks or a couple days ago, and I said, "Who can I talk to on the podcast? Is from the secondary market that won't irritate me or piss me off." And I, and then I said, "Besides Carolyn." <laughs> <laughs> so then, so then nobody came back, and I guess it was just me and you now. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm and here kidding. I am. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I did want to have you on because I, you know, I just came back from Intix in uh, Dallas and Grapevine, and I saw a lot of guys from the secondary market there. Um, you know, 
having conversations with people from the primary side, having conversations with a lot of people um, that, that are their colleagues and everything. Um, and there was a challenge for a lot of people of under, understanding and expressing the value of the secondary market to the primary market and in a way that people could understand. I know from talking to you and knowing you for years that you have a good way of explaining what the value of the secondary market is both to the secondary market and to the primary market. So I think that would be a good place to start is if you could give us your definition of the value of the secondary market uh, from the point of view of you being in the secondary market toward if you were talking to somebody on the primary side so that they would understand it more and not just be like, ooh, broker's bad. Sure. That was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. So, I mean, the biggest value, in my opinion, is to the consumer. You know, the consumers don't always know where to go or how to get to the primary or often the event is sold out. It's hard to get or especially the the really sought after events, um, the big name ones, the national ones, Super Bowl, et cetera. The customers don't know where to go. So the value in having a secondary relationship um, is that we provide that service to them, whether it's, you know, the big, big, big bucket list event or, you know, going to a, a college basketball game with their son or daughter, you know, we're always there for them and have an option and provide that, that high level of service to the customer. Um, the value would also be to sellers. You know, there's often times that um, you yourself might have bought into something that you now can't attend or you bought season tickets and you go to, you know, 75% of the games, but the other 25%, you've got kids activities and you can't attend. So uh, your local secondary person that's in the business would be able to work a deal with you and buy your inventory or, you know, maybe take them on consignment and try to get the most money back for you and really build that relationship. And here at Ticket City, we've been in business for, almost 30 years and you know, we've built a really large uh, seller focused based company. We've got tons of people that do just what I explained where they can't attend or, you know, they bought extras and their family backed out or they, they bought season tickets. They've moved out of state. They can't go, but they don't want to give them up. Um, so we're always there for them to, you know, to be able to help them out. Um, that same thing goes for, teams, um, private parties, corporations that, that have extra inventory that they would like to monetize. You know, we've always been able to be very open and honest with them and tell them what we can do to help them out. And you know, the, the secondary market is there to be you know, a fair and open marketplace for people to buy tickets. And hopefully it stays that way. <laughs> That's what we're all aiming for. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, how do I want to put it is I think that the secondary market can be a it's a great thing for consumers. And then I also know that there are a lot of um, people who don't necessarily always act in the in the best interest of consumers. And that's I don't think it's uh, exclusive to the secondary ticket market. I think it's kind of everywhere. It's just that the. Um, the secondary ticket market, when it happens, it gets so much press, right? Because it's a very sexy problem when it when it happens. One yeah. thing that oh well, yeah, one of the things that I'm interested in hearing about from you is, you know, how you and this is specifically you because you know, 
I know it's going to vary from person to person. Act as like a good partner for like the primary market and also the secondary market because I know you do a lot of work with people in the secondary market. So I kind of want to understand your philosophy of being a partner and being a good partner. To me, being a good partner is doing what you say you're going to do, always following through and just not overextending yourself in any way. Um, I would say really communicating. Uh, you know, I, I feel like at our company, we've always maintained a lot of partnerships from, from all different sides, you know, and we, we haven't taken sides. We've always sort of really had a company philosophy of being Switzerland. You know, we, we have relationships with other marketplaces that we do business with those. We consider those uh, exchanges to be our clients. We have individual customers, like I said, corporations, teams, those are our clients. So no matter who you're dealing with, it's just, just doing the right thing and, and being open and honest. And, you know, sometimes they don't want to hear what you have to say. Maybe you can't pay what they want that what they think their tickets are worth. But, um, if you, you know, make a fair, uh, offer, then they they can take it or leave it, but at least you've communicated to them what what you can do. Um, I think being a good partner is embracing technology and really trying to be as efficient and uh, up to date as you possibly can, and not being afraid to take risks and and try new things when it comes to technology. And there's so many advancements now in the in the whole ticket business and so much data out there. And I said this uh, last year at our conference in Vegas, you know, there's, there's so much more information available now than there was even three or five years ago, not to mention 15 years ago. And so I think being a good partner is using everything that you have to be, you know, like I said, fairly priced to be efficient in your fulfillment and to really deliver on time um, you know, and, and communicate when there is an issue to stay in front of it, to not be afraid of it and, um, and just, you know, come right out and deal with it and, and come to a resolution quickly. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's sort of how I feel. It's like, you don't, you don't be, be you're not a good partner if you're hiding from something or hiding from the people you're working with. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was yeah. joking with a client of mine. I was like, I found that maybe one of the greatest pieces of value that I offer my customers is that probably 99.9% of the time when they call, I answer the phone when they're calling. I mean, there's, you know, sometimes I, I can't get to it, but most of the time I, I just answer the phone when people are calling me. And that Absolutely. really, and that really is like very, very helpful for people. Um, and it seems lost sometimes. Um, what, it does, yes. What you brought up though that I'm kind of interesting in, interested in, and it's partly because of a new committee that I just became part of for um, through Intix, is the technology aspect. And you said, uh, you know, as a good partner, you need to be cutting edge. Um, you know, how would you define cutting edge? Because one of the things that I'm always um, amazed at is the gap between the technology and the solutions at the secondary market offer and have compared to what is usually offered and available to people on the primary side that uh, which 
is my way of being delicate of saying that it seems like so many times, especially in the States, the secondary market has way better technology and data and information than the primary side does. So how do you define cutting edge in, in technology these days? Well, so two parts. I think the primary is becoming more cutting edge as the primary is blending more and more with the secondary. And uh, just, for example, the NFL going almost exclusively to mobile tickets is very cutting edge. You know, and something, if you would have told me that a few years ago, I would have probably laughed. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> it, it seemed like such a foreign concept, you know, five, ten years ago, especially. Um, but now that they, they've really, it's there and it's not going anywhere. It's not changing. So the primary is, in, especially in the professional sports teams, are, are becoming more cutting edge. Um, sorry, what was the second question? <laughs> the second part was, how do I, what, how do I define cutting edge? What, I think that just really, there's so, like we as a business, we've been in business, I'd say almost 30 years. We have so much data we've collected on how, what prices we have sold an event year after year, when we sold it. Uh, who we sold it to. And so, you know, really coming back around and not just saying, oh, well, I think, I think that that ticket's going to sell for that price because my gut tells me, you know, this. I'm actually going back and saying, oh, well, historically, we've sold tickets at this price. So even though the market might be 30% higher now, I'm not going to get 30% more. So I'm going to be at a more competitive price, again, which is fair to the consumer. And I think that's also being a good partner to to the exchanges or whoever we're selling to. Helps keep them competitive. I think that um, embracing the data and technology and just and staying up to date on pricing. You know, so many of my colleagues still just manually manually price every single ticket that they touch. And you know, we don't. We try to automate as much of it as, as possible and say, you know, we think that, again, based on the historical information we have, the prices are going to be at X, you know, three weeks from now. Okay, well, let's be at that price three weeks from now or two weeks from now and get ahead of it. Um, I think that, you know, just really embracing mobile ticketing and uh, flash seats, electron, all the electronic transfers and trying to automate that process um, is, is cutting edge. You know, instead of having to have a human, which the humans are fantastic and I couldn't live without them here, but the less human intervention is, is my goal because it, the more time someone has to touch it, the more it costs me as an employer, right? They could be doing something else or the less opportunity there is for it to not be done correctly. Right. I was going to say that when you talked about uh, before we were chatting here about eliminating humans from the fulfillment aspect as much as possible, and and then you said humans are great and you can't live without them, and I think that's important for people to understand is that you guys have been very proactive over the years of using technology in a way that allows you to have computers and technology fill the role of repetitive tasks in a way that 
um, enables the people that work there to be much more proactive and much more focused on doing the things only people can do, which is like interacting with other people and like, you know, building relationships, building partnerships, um, doing all kinds of things like that. And I think that's something that we can't emphasize nearly enough. It's not to eliminate people completely. It's to get people in a position that do things that only people can do. Um, right. Well, and the people have a lot of knowledge, you know, they have a lot of insight into what's happening in the industry and, um, what they think is going to happen. And so the more they can communicate that to, to our clients, to the people that are selling to us, to, um, any of our other partnerships, then the better, you know, the, the more we can grow as a company, you know, and like you said, the less repetitive tasks they're doing, the more they can focus on that or pricing or, uh, you know, um, just anything they can be working on. Yeah. And, and I got a question too, because the way you explained data was interesting to me. And, and part of it's like, um, as being a part of a technology committee has made me do it uh, to study more and learn a lot more about technology. But I've also been really curious about data and I have a hypothesis that, and I've seen to ask this question to almost everybody that comes on here now is, um, it seems to me, this is my hypothesis. I feel that people are using data too often as a way to allow the data to make a decision for them. And I feel that the proper way of using data is for it to help you test a hypothesis, right? Like I think I have an idea. I'm going to look at the data and see if the data backs up my assumption. Um, And it sounds like from the way you described using it to price effectively and to look at trends and stuff that you're doing sort of what I was talking about was the right way, right? Which is like, I assume I see this pricing is going to be three weeks down the road here. I bet if I get the price there in two weeks, it's going to give me an advantage over others in the market. Did I, am I correct or did I mishear that? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Well, and I feel like sometimes our uh, competition prices where they think the market's going to go. So they're sort of waiting for the market to come to them. And we might have, information going back that says, you know, I don't know, I don't know that that market's ever going to go to that, you know, and maybe sometimes we miss it and we could have made more money, but then most of the time we don't. So we're willing to, we're willing to go the other way and say, okay, we're going to say historically it was lower and we're going to price it that way. And we're going to actually make more on those tickets than if we just hold out and wait, and then eventually we'll just have to slash the prices just to move the tickets late. It's funny you said that about slashing the problems late because I was wondering if, you know, by trying to wait for the market to get to them and when the market may never get there, do you feel or does the data you have show that part of that is the reason that is driving a lot of that race to the bottom pricing at the end and that is teaching consumers to wait till the very last minute to buy? Or is that sort of something you haven't been able to link um, yet? No, I definitely think there's a link. And there's the, the consumers have more, way more information than they've ever had, right? And so they can see what, how many tickets are available on the market, and they can see the price changes. And so, yes, they might wait. Are there certain instances and there have been events where the prices did come back up? Absolutely. You know, but a lot of times – logistically you just can't you can't wait to sell them at those prices maybe if they're 
still a hard stock ticket. You're, you've missed your window for shipping. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it, weather, uh, timing, you know, uh, shipping, any of it. So, um, it goes both ways. Historically though, we try to use information we have and, and, and now there's also, there's new factors that come into it. So you might have, you might have a strategy for pricing that changes 45 minutes later based on new information. Um, so just constantly trying to you know, use what we know, use all of our insights, all of our knowledge and say, okay, here's, here's what we think, here's what the data is telling us and how do we tie this together? Which is where we rely on our people that have a lot of experience too. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that totally makes sense. It's, um, I, I know that for a lot of people, it's the, um, the challenge of not driving the price through the floor because I mean, it's bad for everybody. You know, I don't think, I, th- I mean, except for the, I mean, it's great for the consumer, but I don't think I actually, I don't even think it's great for the consumer because if they know that they're going to wait until the last minute and they're able to get a Dodger ticket or a Rangers ticket or a nationals ticket for a dollar or $2, then it really destroys the value that that game or experience has for the consumer as well. And I think that, um, a lot of times if you're doing, if you put yourself in the position where there's a race to the bottom, like so, that, it just hurts everybody. It's just not, it's not it hurts everybody. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, and I'm not saying we're racing to the bottom. I'm saying that maybe three or four months out, you know, we're, we're just trying to be competitively priced because we know that, um, whatever new information we have coming is going to change that pricing. If that makes sense. No, that that makes total sense. You you touched on this uh, at the beginning that, you know, there's a a lot of negative connotation when it comes to ticket reselling. And there's laws and and every state has different laws and they're always trying to regulate it, regulate it, regulate it because uh, the negative connotation is that ticket brokers are scalpers and they are buying the tickets and they're selling it for so much more than what they paid for it. When in reality, the the times that that happens is so few and far between, and the investment that we're making in in a lot of our inventory positions, we are lucky to break even, and a lot of times even end up losing money. And so that again benefits the consumer because they do get a better deal on those tickets. They didn't have to go pay the full face value. They they maybe got it for twenty five percent less, or like you said, often even way less. And so no one really highlights that. No one highlights, you know, when we have tickets that even go unsold, when we can't give them away because nobody wants them. And yet we paid full price for that. They only want to highlight when the market goes crazy and people can't get tickets because of some anomaly that happened that, you know, this, this one out of a thousand events went haywire and, and it's now a, a media circus. You know, they don't, they don't see the box in my office of unused tickets for the whole year. They don't see the box of Deadwood. Uh, not, I don't think when the the idea of brokers being just like sucking up all the profit, um, I don't know how true that is. And I think it becomes well, a little less not. true every year. Um, yeah. As there's more well, tools and, and information. Yeah. The, right. The value is, you know, I have a, a client or a friend that comes to me and it and happens every single day, you know, I'll get a text message, you know, Hey, do you have, can you help me get tickets to, we're here in Austin, Fleetwood Mac played on Saturday night. I had three or four friends calling me for Fleetwood Mac. Well, 
you know, tickets are an emotional experience, right? If they want to go and the market is at whatever the market price is, they make that decision to go, but we're providing that value and that service. It doesn't mean that I made a ton of money on that sale, but I'm going to, I'm going to make a little bit for, you know, the investment in my time. If, if I have a client, uh, that, you know, is a lifelong Chicago bears fan and they want to plan a trip to go with their family, that's the value that we provide. And people are willing to pay for that service, just like you're willing to pay for, you know, uh, Uber is a service that takes you everywhere you go, or, or you know, you can name a thousand examples. It just happens to be an industry that's very, um, it's under a spotlight, you know, and, and so people have just are maybe not quite aware of what we really do. And I think it's, um, it also mirrors because you brought up the good word emotional, right? Which is, I tell mm-hmm. everybody, I go, as much as you want to think everybody's making decisions rationally, no one is making a rational decision. Um, tickets is maybe even more emotionally driven than other industries, right? And it becomes hyper emotional so that um, sometimes when these stories pop up, it's, it's if it was some other industry or some other product or service, it would be like you'd be, you'd you'd recognize it and you'd move on. But since it's a ticket, it's like oh my god, it sets people's um, mm-hmm. on edge, and it you know. But it doesn't always reflect the reality of the situation. And I know that I'm about that that comment is going to definitely fill up my inbox with a lot of hate mail. But that's fine. <laughs> it's Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Just get it all out. Exclamations, <laughs> caps. I don't care. It's uh you know because I'm all my you know my focus is always on trying to get people in to shows and having them get gain experiences. Right. I mean, like you've heard me say it a million times that like if I can get the people in the door, I can definitely make money off of them. Um, and I think that's like where the focus should lie. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about though too is because you talked we talked a lot about what's going on at Ticket City, but you're also on the board of the NATB. And I know yeah. that the NATB um, is gets a you know gets a lot of bad press, um, and, but and I have a good relationship with the NATB. I like to think, um, and mainly because I find that they have done they've tried to do a good job of being customer focused. Um, you know, it's um, one of those things I remember with the score big. Um, fiasco mm-hmm. a couple of years back, the NATB and the NATB's members uh, stepped in and they rescued consumers who had paid their own money, you know, and, and fully expecting to get tickets for shows. Um, they saved, um, you know, like probably close to a million dollars or more of inventory, and and in a way that like consumers were never even put at risk. And I think that um, you know that really to me stood out and kind of highlighted you know, what the, the, you know, the NATB and the secondary market should be, um, you know, it shouldn't mm-hmm. be like, a, it shouldn't be a casino and it shouldn't be something that consumers should be scared of. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit, and then I know there's other stuff about the NATB that you're involved in, but can you talk to me a little bit about your work with the NATB and some of the, um, you know, the issues and the challenges and opportunities that you're looking at and the board's looking at? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think what you said speaks volumes to what the NATB is trying to accomplish. And if you go to the website, it's it's uh, natb.org. There is a 10 commandments of ticket buying that helps guide consumers to what to look for, what research to do, what to not do. Um, there's an affiliation with the National Better Business Bureau. Uh, the NATB is backed by them as well. 
And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what, what can we do to help protect consumers and how can we guide them and how can people avoid getting scammed, you know, come search on here. There's also um, for fans, uh, you can find a, a local NATB member in your state, city, et cetera, that you could buy from. Um, you know, we're, we're all competitors, but we're all working together for the same thing. And I, you know, I said earlier, we want a fair and open marketplace. Um, we've spent time, a lot of time, especially our general counsel, uh, working with lawmakers and, and lobbyists and trying to know what laws are coming and how we can help educate lawmakers to, to what we're doing and how our business works. Um, so that it, so a lot of that negative negative connotation is um, is you know turned around to a, a positive conversation that we are providing a service and we do have value, and um, you know the board really is trying to help to get the word out there that we are an advocate for the consumer, we are an advocate for each other. You know we want um, we want our members to be able to continue doing their business the way they have. And um, there is a, there's a guideline, a standard for members. There's a application process, a vetting process. And, you know, there's a, there's a um, guidelines that we have to adhere to, to be a member and, um, you know, just really trying to work with other partners um, and help us understand our business more and how we can, you know, advance into the future and not be left behind, you know, and, and um, really just focus on making sure that the ticket buying and selling business um, is, is, like I said, I mean, I'm just repeating myself, but it just is fair and open marketplace. Absolutely. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I try to uh, make sure there's like a, a few like points where I can uh, trip you up. So I figured asking you about the NATV would be helpful in tripping you up. But <laughs> but I and I but I, I do think that it, it's worth highlighting, um, you know, that the issues that you know the NATV does focus on is is our um, issues based around openness. And I think one of the mm-hmm. challenges that is unique to the United States because I have a lot of listeners that are going to be um, from all over the world. Um, and that, that it bears explaining is that where most of the world has a much more open system where people can buy, you know, they can build a website, uh, they can gain ticket allocations, they can partner with uh, the primary side to help move their tickets. The role of the secondary market in the United States spends does a lot of that that happens naturally in an open market in the other parts of the world. And what that does is that helps people have, you know, number one, it's greater competition between platforms to help sell the tickets they have. Um, It helps solve a marketing challenge for people. It's also, um, it is better for the consumers because you're not wed to one site or one place or, you know, some kind of monopolistic control over your ability to buy a ticket, right? Which in most cases is going to encourage uh, bad behavior if our history of monopolies holds true, which it always does, which is that um, anytime there is a monopoly control in the market, it hurts consumers, um, you know, and, and that's really the core of what the NATB is trying to do. At least from my work with um, you know you and Corey and Gary and um, 
you know, Tom, Ken, like all the people on the board, um, you know, and I think it's, it bears highlighting because a lot of the pushback comes because people are defending a closed system that is kind of like shrouded in secrecy and that is completely consumer unfriendly. Um, you know, and, and, and that, those are my words, not yours. So anybody who's, you know, again, I gave you my email address, any hate mail, feel free. Just, <laughs> just bring it on because, uh, again, I'm always putting the customer first and, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily, um, uh, mean kowtowing to whoever's, um, you know, how do I want it? You know, it doesn't mean always taking the popular road. Uh, one thing I do want to highlight also is that you are on the membership committee. Is that right? Which you have that you have that fancy new website that took uh, that you guys put up, you know, um, as and it would in partnership with that you took over and you've been trying to drive membership. Um, I am. I want to talk to a little bit about this too because I know that throughout the industry, people have been a little reluctant to join the NATB. Um, I have been I've been advocating for it because I feel that like the more brokers and more people are members of the NATB, the stronger the institution is, the more safety is going to bring the consumers and the more value is going to create for the ticket ecosystem. That's my pitch to people. I, What's your pitch? I, I mean, I couldn't say it any better. I mean, absolutely. Yes. There's so much value in, you know, strength in numbers. Have, you know, if you, if you are a member of the NATB, you have a voice, uh, you have a lot of opportunities. There's, educational opportunities. I mean, there's a lot of people in their members that have a lot to offer. Um, there's, there's a networking, there's, uh, you know, when you're doing a deal with someone and they know you're a member, not that they're not going to give the same respect to a non-member they are, but you know, you're willing to, um, you know, maybe go the extra mile to help them out, meet their client, you know, for them. And, and you, know, you can trust that uh, the, the other members going to have your back and, um, uh, the biggest thing, though, for being becoming a member is the protection of resale rights and having that legal team that is helping fight for you. And um, you mentioned Gary's name. He spends a tremendous amount of time. Uh, that is his primary role as a as a the chief counsel and uh, board of director, the head of the board of directors. And he, um, you know, he'll he's there for you. So if you're not a member. And you don't want to go pay for an attorney or you don't want to have the time to go meet with your local lobbyist. You've got Gary in your back pocket fighting for you. Yeah. And, and I, and I think there's one other issue that, about this that I, that I want to highlight too, is that because I know there's a lot of argument typically in the Facebook groups on uh, between brokers about what the NATB should be doing and what it should not be doing. Um, and we've kind of, I think we've done a fairly fair uh, and good job of highlighting the things um, that it should be doing, right? Which is like advocating for an open market, protecting consumers, um, you know, uh, highlighting uh, incongruencies and um, bad practices in the market. I'm going to say this so that you and you can chime in or not say it if you want to. The, I think what the NATB isn't in the business of doing though is trying to create and then um, stop people from being able to make partnerships, make deals, um, you know, do business. Right. And I, th- I know that like there's um, a vocal minority or there's like a lot of people who complain about the NATB's um, 
jumping in on consolidation deals. Um, and I, I've often felt that that's just really not the NATV's uh, role to play, call balls and strikes on that. Um, I know that you have a definite, you know, you have feel, strong feelings about consolidation deals the same way I do. Um, but I just, I really want to throw that out there because I know that this is like something that people talk about all the time. And I just, I really feel it's not the NATV's role to step in and kind of try to regulate those in, in you know, to any extent, because that's, um, you know, it's a trade association. Sure. Um, um, I would agree with you. And I would say that, that that's not the goal of the NATV and there are, to backtrack, there are people that are vocal on other parts of what they think the NATV should and should not be doing, and I've uh, only had limited interaction with some of those individuals, and I challenged them to call me. I put my direct telephone number on there and said, let me know what you think we should be doing, and I didn't hear from them. Um, well, that highlights you know, the bigger issue of these guys, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of these guys complaining all the time, and it's girls too, so you know, I'm, I'm equal opportunity. <laughs> Well, and they, and you know, the thing is, if you look, we changed the membership guidelines. We made it more, um, you know, we said you could you could join for a limited time. You could pay month to month. And so, if they want to be a member and then they don't like what's happening, they can drop out. Um, but at least it would give people an opportunity to, you know, peek behind the curtain, so to speak, and and get a glimpse of what we are fighting for. And if, if I would love for them to, to accept that challenge and come on board and hopefully we can show them what, uh, what benefits NATB has to offer and we can grow as an organization and help again, keep that fair and open marketplace. Um, and just so people understand, it used to be a historically, you'd have to pay for the year and this month to month things very new. And now I've ventured into the area where I'm almost making commercial for NATV membership, which is like, <laughs> you know, that's fine. I don't care. Um, what is the month to month? How, how does that work? You said you can cancel at any time. Was it, uh, is it a hundred dollars a month? hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Okay. So anybody who is, um, listening who is in the secondary market i i think like for a hundred dollars you probably waste that on starbucks in a month um because i know you're working you know like if you're working on your laptop at a computer like i might from time to time you know every time i go into starbucks it's five bucks um you know i think it's worth it you know and, and as I, more people challenge me to get involved with like some of these things and i participate the only way you can change is by participating um so um, i would encourage you to join absolutely Absolutely. But again, now I've veered into commercial uh, areas. Can't hurt. I mean, <laughs> what, what's it going to hurt, right? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, you, I mean, we always waste more than 100 bucks on stuff. So, I mean, it's worth an effort, right? And if the organization doesn't respond to your um, concerns and your issues, then maybe then you have every right to voice your displeasure, right? But, but I, I think it frustrate, it's frustrating to me to see like too many people uh, sling spitballs um, and, and they don't want to take action. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to participate. And that's, um, you know, and I think that's as much of a commercial as I'm going to make for joining, uh, because I think a hundred (laughs) bucks is like, (laughs) it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's worth test taking for a test drive. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Yes. Yes. Um, well, let me ask you this now, before we go, how do people find you on the internet? Cause I know they, you just said that you have your, you put your personal phone number on, on, on the internet for people to get in touch with you. <laughs> I did um, on the Facebook group. Yeah. 
God bless you. <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> well, my phone didn't ring, so I guess know, it was safe. Apparently, didn't have a whole lot to say. So, <laughs> but I'm here if if anybody wants to call me and talk about um, what they where they think the ticket business is going and what ideas they have to change it. Yeah. I'm open to hear it. Okay, and um, and then. Do you want me to give the number out, or, or do you want to give the number out, or do you want everybody to email you? <laughs> People can email me. I'm I've, I'm easy to find. I'm Caroline at Ticket City and dot com, and and um, I you know I, you can find me on LinkedIn, and I'm, I'm so I preach about technology, but I'm such not a Twitter person. Like I follow Twitter, but I don't tweet. But I do have a Twitter account. Um, and but I'm pretty boring, so you don't probably want to follow me. <laughs> when I tag you today, you will uh, you will likely get some new followers. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, that should be my 2019 goal is to tweet more. How about that? I like that. You I can like ask that. me about that next time I talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. I, I will monitor it because I know that I am one of your followers. So, um, all right. Well, so Caroline, uh, any any other parting wisdom that we should leave people with before I thank you for being here? Well, um, I mean, I think we touched on a lot of really good topics and I, I just, you know, again, I, I obviously would not have stayed in this business for as long as I have, um, if I didn't believe in it and, and, you know, your podcast is the business of fun. And I would say at the end of the day, I mean, I'm still having fun. I love what I do. I think that, um, this business has been, such a challenge and in, in such a positive way. I mean, there's, it's forever changing. It's constantly evolving, you know, and, and there's always new opportunities and new things. And, um, it's really been, you know, a, a, a learning experience. And, um, I love, I love, you know, when you hand someone their tickets to an event that they're so excited to go and, you know, that they're, I was just at the Super Bowl, So, you know, you, you get those, Patriots fans and whether they've been there eight times or this is their first time, like they're just, like you said, it's such an emotional experience and they're so excited to be going to the game and, you know, you get to witness that and be a part of it. And for me, that's been, you know, kind of the, the highlights of my career is getting to be involved in that. And um, hopefully, like we said a hundred times that, you know, this, this business doesn't change so much that I can keep doing that uh, because that's what I love to do. Right. And I think that's a um, a really great endorsement for, you know, just the profession of tickets and, you know, all the stuff that any of the people who listen to this podcast do is that like it is an emotional thing and you are like impacting people in ways that like you might not even recognize. And, and, and most of the time it's in like a really, really positive way, um, you know, and it, it's just really a positive, a really, really positive thing. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, and Thank hopefully you, you will me. get too many, uh, hate emails. I'm sure. Cause I'm sure. Okay. I will. So, uh, thank you okay. again. Thank you. All right.
I want to thank Carolyn Gibbs for being on the Business of Fun one more time. Find her by emailing her at carolyn at ticketcity.com. I will tag her Twitter handle in the show notes. Um, she said, do not expect her to necessarily start tweeting regularly. Um, as always, thank you for listening. If you want to find out what I'm up to, you can visit my website. It's www.davewakeman.com. You can email me. It is my name, dave at davewakeman.com, where you can send me your questions, your concerns, your thoughts, um, suggested topics or guests you'd like to hear from, uh, any kind of information. Just send it to me at dave at davewakeman.com. You can also find me on the Twitters, um, at David Wakeman. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Also, I want to offer my Business of Fun podcast listeners a special opportunity today. I have a new idea that I want to test, and I want you to help me test it. So for the first five people who email me, at my name, dave at davewakeman.com, put consultation in the subject line, I'm going to offer a free 30-minute revenue reinvention consultation. This is uh, built off of the Intex webinar or web um, workshop I did, uh, the Revenue Reinvention Workshop. And we're going to go through and look at your value, the ways that money's coming into your organization, uh, the way you're marketing and selling your products and services. Um, we're going to kind of cut through everything and we're going to create an overview of where revenue is coming in. Um, and we're going to look and see if we can uncover some sources of hidden revenue for you and your organization. Um, so the first five people who email me, dave at davewakeman.com, with consultation in the subject line, I'm going to offer you this. Um, no strings attached, no nothing. Um, just as a favor for, for me to you um, for helping me test drive a new idea. Finally, I want to thank Booking Protect, who graciously sponsor this podcast and are extremely good friends of mine. They offer the world's most comprehensive refund protection program. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has your customers covered. To find out how you can put Booking Protect to work for you to help give your customers a better buying experience, more peace of mind, a more customized buying journey, and how you can create a new revenue stream for your organization, visit www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com. And before I go, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Take it easy.